Welcome to the Sensibly Speaking Podcast. This is Chris Shelton, the critical thinker at large, coming at you on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, and with video here on YouTube. I want to thank you very much for coming around and checking out my podcast. And this week, we are going to go right into this. I have been very, very interested in this subject for quite a while now, and I've been doing a lot of research, and as I've mentioned in some other my other videos and podcasts, I've been reading about the brain and neuroscience and neurology and <laughs> things like that. I actually got on to that from reading Jonathan Haidt's book, The Righteous Mind. I found the first two-thirds of that book to be absolutely fascinating, and he laid out a, a series of facts about brains and brain studies and things like that that I had never really seen or gotten involved in. I've heard things on the periphery. I've always wondered where we at on brain science and, you know, how are we moving forward on that? Who's doing the research? I've spoken with Rachel Bernstein, who is a psychologist and therapist, about interdisciplinary activities between neurology and psychology and even sociology, anthropology. I mean, all these humanities, all these uh, various disciplines feed one another, or at least they should. And um, I see a lot of separation between these things and wonder, you know, uh, how much longer that's going to be able to be, <laughs> be uh, you know, carried out because uh, there's, you know, there's things that are being found in this field that affect this field, etc. And that's kind of how my own research tends to go, as I will be on one thing. I was reading The Righteous Mind because that book talks about why good people, you know, believe all, you know, all kinds of strange things and why bad people think all kinds of strange things and why we think because of what we think that other people are inherently bad because they have a different idea. And it's all about morality and Jonathan Haidt's moral foundations theory, which is quite interesting and things, and, and there are definitely uh, things about it that I think will be developed as, as time goes on and other people get into that. But what I wanted to, <laughs> the reason I'm talking about this is because this is how I got into reading Haidt's book about brain stuff and these studies and split brain personalities and some of the phenomena connected with that got me intensely interested in the nature of consciousness and more importantly and more applicable to my area of study and the thing that I'm trying to find out about, it led me to what are the psychological mechanisms underlying our critical thinking, underlying our decision-making processes. And you find out pretty quickly when you start diving into this that the subject of free will comes up. Apparently, this is very controversial. I definitely used to have extremely different ideas about free will because I was a Scientologist and I thought that we were immortal spiritual beings who carried on from life to life to life and most definitely had an innate, inherent free will, you know, the ability to think what we want, do what we want, go where we want, etc., as spiritual entities. And that we were just sort of um, trapped by circumstances and by ourselves and the nature of ourselves, according to Hubbard's ideas, uh, here on Earth. And, we, and that's why you do Scientology, to, to find out what's trapping you and, uh, and get rid of it. 
you know, so that you're no longer trapped and you have full cause and determination over your actions and, and decisions and all of that. Well, <laughs> it turns out that might not all be true. And in fact, it might be very, very different from how we have been thinking about ourselves from the dawn of time to now. Of course, the reason for this is because of the emergence of neuroscience and brain scanning and MRIs and all this other stuff. So we're going to get into some of this. Now, I'm not doing this podcast from the position that this, what I'm going to go over is absolutely positively the end of anything there is to say about this. Just the opposite. This is really the beginning of a conversation more so than the end of one. I think that there's still a ton of things to figure out with all of this, and, and at the end of the podcast, I'll go over some of that too. So first off, though, before I get into any assertions, any ideas at all about what you know we're talking about when we're talking about free will, first, I would like to ask you, the viewers or listeners out there, some questions. And I would like you to um, take a moment to pause from what you're doing and listen carefully to these and answer each one of them. They're all yes-no questions, so this won't be hard at all. First question. Did you choose your parents? Did you decide where you were born? Did you decide when you were born? Did you choose your skin color? Did you have any control over where you went to kindergarten? Did you choose where you went to grade school? Did you get to wear what you want to work today? <laughs> Did you get to choose whether to eat or not eat today? Did you ever decide to be lucky? Did you know there are more bacteria in your body than human cells? Do you know how those bacteria influence your body and therefore your state of mind and therefore your decisions? When you have a craving for a pickle or a Twinkie or a piece of candy, did you decide to have that? If I smile at you, do you have to think about it before you smile back? When a song is playing in your head and you don't like it, can you just turn it off? When you first encountered your spouse or significant other, did you make a conscious decision to be attracted to them? Do you recall when it was you decided what your sexual orientation would be? When you feel sad over a loss, can you consciously decide to just not feel that way anymore? Have you ever walked into a room and have no idea why or how you got there? Have you ever said something without thinking at all before you said it? And now, to broaden out a little bit, does a sociopath choose to be a sociopath? Does a pathological liar have any choice when it comes to telling lies? If someone commits a truly horrifying act, but you find out there's a valid, and correctable medical reason for it, which is wholly beyond their control. Do you think it would be fair to still punish them for what they did? All right, all of those questions obviously revolve around the subject of free will. Now, 
one of the books that I read, uh, and I'm going to post a, a little bibliography of sources that I'm citing or references that I've gone over on this so you guys can see and read or check out some of the things I've been reading and checking out lately. Uh, one of them is a little almost pamphlet-sized book by Sam Harris called Free Will. And there's a couple of quotes from there I was particularly taken by, and one of those is this. Free will is an illusion. Our wills are simply not of our own making. Thoughts and intentions emerge from background causes of which we are unaware and over which we exert no conscious control. We do not have the freedom we think we have. And also another source of wonderful information that I've been uh, checking out over the last few days is a man named Chris Voss, who used to be an FBI hostage negotiator. In fact, he was the person who was overall in charge internationally of hostage negotiations for the United States from his position in the FBI. He has since moved on to business and that sort of thing, and you can look him up and see some of his talks and presentations, and they are absolutely fascinating. And they are totally in line with my interests and where I'm going with all of this, I believe, eventually. <laughs> um, he said that we make decisions based on what we care about, which immediately makes decision-making an emotional process. And if you can see how that works. Uh, you know, so much of what we think we know about ourselves is just plain wrong because the way we think and the way we decide things is counterintuitive to how we think we do or what we tell ourselves. You know, we spin a lot of narratives, right? And those narratives are sort of our own rationalization or, or justification for why we find ourselves doing what we're doing or thinking what we're thinking. Our gut tells us what to do, and then we reason out why that is the thing we need to do. <laughs> That's the sequence. It's not the other way around. Negative, and, and get this, because negatives, fear, anger, hostility, these kind of negative things are actually three times as powerful as the positive. There are, there are there's more mechanisms in our brain that are focused on threat assessment, survival, um, fear, like, you know, this kind of thing, the things that arm and, and uh, activate our fight or flight mechanisms. There's more of that going on in our brain than there is the positive thinking. However, it's interesting how the positive thinking can actually get you into a more rational state of mind. And I'm going to be doing more research on that because I want to know more about how that works and how that can be integrated with teaching and utilizing critical thinking. But that's in the future. <laughs> right now, uh, I'm addressing this point of free will because this is really important to understand about our own thinking processes. Uh, so, psychologically, the biggest driver for us is fear of loss, which explains so much behavior around things like mass shootings. Now, a week ago, we had a mass shooting in Christchurch, New Zealand, and there's been a lot of press about this, but the media has pretty much died down on it now. Um, only a week. I was afraid, you know, midweek I was thinking about this quite a bit, and I was looking at doing this whole podcast around that, but then I, I changed it up to this because I didn't want to just be another talking head. But there is something to say about this in terms of our responses to mass shootings that I wanted to kind of get out there because it involves... Um, some of the stuff I've been learning about. You know, there are only so many reasons that we do what we do. 
there's only so many things that motivate us. Um, and like I mentioned, threat assessment is one of those. And threat assessment is why I believe, I think it's one of the major motivators behind why we freak out and act the way we do over these mass shootings. I'm not talking about causative agents as far as what makes the shooters do it. I'm talking about the rest of us, like how we, re how we all respond to this. You know, we freak out over the loss of life, especially when children are involved, because that assaults our primal instinct to reproduce as a species and our primal instincts to live our lives in a safe environment. Mass shootings assault us on both of these fronts, and we struggle to find meaning we, you know, because we understand things in terms of stories and narratives. If you want to remember something, tell yourself a story about it. That will make sure, that will more ensure that you're going to remember it than if it's just some random fact that's floating around in your head. It's not to say that that's, you know, 100% workable, but it's a nice little mental trick you can do. You know, we understand things this way, and so when we view things that we are threatened by in the world at large, we try to provide some kind of meaning and causation to it that makes sense to us and, uh, and, and try to predict what was happening and why it happened so we can prevent it from happening again, obviously. But here's the problem. We don't understand ourselves <laughs> and each other enough to be able to know what those causes actually are. So we bounce around blaming this or that or the other thing in a desperate attempt to seek some kind of closure and explanation. And once we've satisfied ourselves as to what the explanation might be, whatever it is, we don't have to think about it anymore. Now we can put a lid on it and go, that's this thing, whatever that label is, whether it's you know, terrorist extremism or religion or uh, foreigners or w laws or the laws all need to be changed or it's all the guns or it's all this or it's all that. All these single source <laughs> causes for these things are all wrong. There is no single source of causation or no single causative agent for why a mass shooter goes and does what he does. And it is fascinating to me at this point and a little sad watching all of the social media responses to it, the outrage, the grief, the upset, because people are floundering around in ignorance of what's, what happened, first off, because all the facts don't come out for days, weeks, if not months. And... Um, and they don't know what it is that they're even trying to fit, you know, they're, they're trying to figure out why does this happen? What can we do to prevent it? But without understanding who and what we are and why this works the way it does, we're never going to come to solutions on this. So I find this to be very, very useful uh, in helping me personally understand why bad people do bad things. That was actually what got me on to reading The Righteous Mind in the first place. And I've still got a lot of study to do on that whole topic, too. But that's where this stuff leads. So, uh, so that's sort of a little whatever from me on, on the shooting. It's not like I'm trying to provide closure for a bunch of people. What I'm saying is that it's very difficult to find that if you live in ignorance of psychology, sociology, you know, neurology, etc. Because these are the things that actually are getting to the heart of what does motivate us and what does make us do what we do. Um, now, as far as free will goes, let's go ahead and get back to that now. You know, here's the thing. 
And this really made my head explode so many times. Um, it was just, I mean, this was, the, this was been causing so many shifts and changes and things in me personally because I was raised with and for decades had a very clear understanding of the world through a particular lens. Well, I got rid of that lens and now I'm, you know, trying to not have any other, you know, such, such a limiting, blinding lens again, right? I don't want to put the blinders on again. So, uh, so this is another reason why I study things so broadly. Uh, and in this instance, this was fascinating to me because learning about the brain led me to learn and understand that we're not conscious of all the thought that, that is going on in our body all the time. In fact, we're only aware of the very, very tip of a very deep iceberg. I mean, I'm sort of making these motions right now as you can see me, but I'm talking about something that goes really, really deep under the water and, there, and you can't see down there. There's all kinds of stuff going on in your subconscious some of, most of which you don't need to know anything about. You don't want to know anything about it. Um, but, you know, we don't also happen to have any awareness of it. And yet our brain is doing the work that needs to be done in order to keep our body running and in order to keep us going through life. You know, our conscious awareness is only capable of being aware of so many things at one time. Really, a handful of things. We don't multitask. I mean, we're not, we don't truly have five or six or ten windows open at a time and we're, and we're working all of them all at once. Our brain does do simultaneous processing, but we're not aware of that kind of simultaneous processing. Our conscious awareness only focuses on limited numbers of things. Well, this is a far cry, five or six or seven or even 10 or 20. If you could somehow manage to disperse your attention across 20 tasks and get them all going at one time, even that would be the bare tiniest percentage of the actual work that your brain is doing every minute of every day, even when you're sleeping, by the way. Um, you know, every muscle that you tense Every beat of your heart, every gurgle of your stomach is something your body is actively doing. Your stomach doesn't wait for you to tell it to start digesting the turkey sandwich you ate for lunch. It just starts doing it seemingly of its own volition. You couldn't make it stop no matter how hard you tried. You'd literally have to go off to a mountain and meditate for years and become a yogi in order to get any tiniest degree of control over this thing we call the autonomous, autonomic nervous system. And your stomach and all of this stuff is all, you know, controlled by this. And it's all out of your, it's all out of your hands. And yet, it's still you. It's still your body, which means it's still you. You understand where I'm going with this. But, you know, okay, so we can write off the autonomic nervous system, but we shouldn't be so quick to actually do that. I mean, think about this for a second. We all became aware, most of us, I think, became aware during our science education in grade school that we don't have any control over all these functions. And we kind of shrugged as kids and we said, well, okay, that's fine. I don't can have control over it and that's how it is. And, you know, I don't really want to think about digesting my food or pushing my blood around my body or lifting, you know, fighting off foreign organisms called diseases. I don't want to have to give my immune system control, you know, I don't want to have to have to control every single aspect of my immune system for it to do what it needs to do. 
so I'll just let my body take care of it. So we're, but if you think about this for a second, you see we're already used to the idea that there are things going on with us that are totally out of our control, and we've accepted it, and we're okay with it. So really what this whole thing about free will is, is it's really just extending that same thinking to what's going on up here too. It's not easy to do. It's a big shift in thinking. But here's the thing. It's been true your whole life. I mean, this podcast is not an effort to try to create some kind of revolution in thinking. You're going to keep doing what you've been doing the whole time. What I'm trying to do is raise your awareness of what you're doing. So... All right, so somehow when it comes to taking it the rest of the way with our thinking, we kind of really resist this. I mean, we really have a problem with it in some cases. Um, You know, religion mixes into this, the law mixes into this, all kinds of preconceived ideas mix into this that, by the way, are all ideas that are hundreds if not thousands of years old and were first thought up by people who had no idea that toilet paper was a thing much less that a microscope was a thing or that, you know, uh, microorganisms were a thing or that atoms or molecules or proteins or any of this stuff was a thing. They were clueless about all of that. They were very smart about certain things back in the day and they set things in motion based on certain understandings about how we are and how we think and how we go about our lives. But some of the premises and ideas that they had in setting these systems up were wrong. I mean, they're just in error. It's not like they were mal... They, they, they didn't do it out of maliciousness or because they were trying to screw everybody over. I mean, if you think about it, these systems have... Some of these systems have been quite sturdy and have lasted for centuries, and, and we've managed to build a civilization on the back of some of this stuff. But that doesn't mean that we shouldn't re-examine some of these basic principles from time to time and maybe take a look at updating and revising them based on new discoveries. So let's talk about a few of these discoveries. Let's talk about a few of the neurological experiments and uh, phenomenon and stuff that I've been presented with uh, in my reading that has been... It's made it very, very difficult for me to maintain the idea that we have free will. (laughs) Because when I first started on this, I would have told you, absolutely, I make all the decisions. I know exactly what I'm doing and why and where I'm going and what I'm doing. Uh, Yeah, not so much. So first off, and I'm just going to kind of gloss over this real fast because it gets kind of complicated. So, But this is just the simple summary explanation is that they hooked up uh, scanning devices to the brain. And you have a part of your brain that's responsible for moving your body around. Motor cortex. This area of the brain lights up 300 milliseconds before you are consciously aware that you're about to start moving your body around. So you're sitting there in a chair and you make a decision to move your hand and you then move your hand. We all think because that's what we're aware of, that's as much subjective reality on that whole procedure that we have. And we think, well, of course I lifted my hand. I was aware of the fact that I wanted my hand to move, and it moved. Except our brain was already initiating the process before we were aware of the fact that we were going to do it. Now, how long before? 
microseconds before. Hundreds of microseconds, but still a very, very tiny amount of time. But enough time to make it very, very clear that our body, our brain being part of that, was already doing the action before we were consciously aware that that was going to happen. That is a monumentally important piece of information. All right, now, as far as maybe broadening the argument a little bit outside of microseconds and brain scans, let's take a look at some, at some more practical examples of how this works. Charles Whitman, okay, this is a pretty classic example. It's been brought up in a couple of the books that I've read. Um, Charles Whitman was the guy, the Texas Tower shooter on August 1st, 1966. Um, he was a 25-year-old former Marine, high IQ, actually in the top point, 0.1 percentile of the United States population at the time. He was married. He lived with his mother and his wife, volunteered as a Boy Scout master, uh, all-around good, rational, got-along-with-people kind of guy. For no seeming apparent rational reason, he climbed the tower of the University of Texas uh, on August 1st, and he killed 13 people with a case of guns that he had brought up there, and he wounded 33 others. They then found out after uh, three cops and a, and a deputy went up there and took him out, they found out that at his home he had killed his mother and his wife as well. Now, there were notes that were left. He was keeping a journal, and this guy, well, let me just read you some of the sections from some of the excerpts from his journal so you can sort of see where this guy was at and what he was struggling with. Because Charles Whitman was not an evil man by any metric. There is not one metric you can find anywhere in this guy's life that I could find at least at all that indicated that this man was evil or of vicious ill intent in his day-to-day -day normal life growing up. So, he writes, I talked to a doctor once for about two hours and tried to convey to him my fears that I felt overcome by overwhelming violent impulses. After one session, I never saw the doctor again, and since then, I have been fighting my mental turmoil alone and seemingly to no avail. Later, he wrote, I do not really understand myself these days. I'm supposed to be an average, reasonable, and intelligent young man. However, lately, I cannot recall when it started, I have been a victim of many unusual and irrational thoughts. Now, when they got to his house and found this, they found that he wrote this bit after he killed his mother, his mother and his wife. It was after much thought that I decided to kill my wife, Kathy, tonight. I love her dearly, and she has been a fine wife to me as any man could ever hope to have. I cannot rationally pinpoint any specific reason for doing this. And he had stabbed her to death. He later wrote, I imagine it appears that I brutally killed both of my loved ones. I was only trying to do a quick, thorough job. If my life insurance policy is valid, please pay off my debts. Donate the rest anonymously to a mental health foundation. Maybe research can prevent further tragedies of this type. 
Now, what you might not know right now, and what I'm about to make all of this make a lot more sense, because clearly you could read this and think, ravings of a delusional madman. The man was evil and insane, and clearly he didn't even understand himself, and what a nutcase. And you could stop right there, and you could go about your business and think that there are just evil people in the world who do evil, evil things for no good reason, and write it off to that, and you will continue to live in the ignorance you've been living in for your entire life. Because the deal with Charles Whitman is he had a nickel-sized brain tumor that had been growing in his head for months. Uh, actually, I think it ended up being like a year or something. Um, and when they found that in his autopsy, which he was writing them to please do, please do an autopsy on my body and figure out what's wrong with me because something's wrong. He was smart enough and rational enough to know that there was something very, very wrong with him, but he did not have any control over the violent, psychopathic thoughts that were occupying his mind all the time. And those thoughts were coming from this brain tumor, which happened to be located in a place where it would have caused this kind of emotional and mental turmoil and these kind of violent thoughts would have been consuming his entire existence, which it did. Now, does that, knowing that, does that change your mind at all about what an evil person Charles Whitman is? Well, it should, because that brain tumor was the cause of the problem. And if it had been found out about while he was still alive, and if it had been taken out, like brain tumors are, then he very, very well uh, probably would not have executed all of those people, killed his wife, killed his mother, etc. He had no rational reason, no ideology, no religious belief, nothing in his past to drive him to that activity. And yet he carried out that activity and practically watched himself doing it and wrote in his journal how frustrating and horrified he was at his own behavior, but he was powerless to stop it. We also have another example, I'll just gloss over this one quickly, of a, I won't get into all the name, rank, serial number on this one, but this has also been mentioned a few times in a few of the books that I've been reading, of uh, pedophilia being caused by a brain tumor. There was a man, a middle-aged man, happily married, perfectly fine life, and uh, no indications at all ever in his life of having any undue or strange or odd attraction to children. Until one day he suddenly started developing this affliction. He uh, soon was obsessed with this. I mean, magazines, videos, you know, literally a guy in, you know, like this guy suddenly lost his job because of this obsession. His wife was at her wit's end as to what to do about this because this man was out of control and he could not stop feeling this overwhelming obsessive attraction to children. Consumed child pornography, which is bad enough. I'm not rationalizing or any way excusing immoral behavior here. I'm talking about causative agents of that behavior. And in this case, this man finally went to a doctor and they did a brain scan, and they found a tumor. They went in and they excised the tumor. Every single 
thought and idea and obsessive thing that he had going with pedophilia instantly was gone. So should that man have been sent to jail for the rest of his life because of the sudden obsessive interest in child pornography and pedophilia after that was taken out of his head and all impulses and ideas and thoughts about that were completely gone? It's a difficult question, isn't it? Now, soon after, it started up again. He started having these thoughts again, and he was very freaked out and alarmed. His wife was, of course, too. Well, they went right back to the doctor. Guess what they found? They didn't get all the tumor. They went in. They got the rest of it because it had started growing back with the same result again because it was growing back in the same part of his brain. So when they went in there and they took it all out and they really got it this time, those urges were gone and he never had those urges again. Now, am I saying that that's the case for all pedophiles? No, I am not, because that would be a ridiculous thing for me to say. I have no proof of that. But I do know that it happened to this guy. And we also know what we know about Charles Whitman. There are more cases of this around. In fact, I'm gonna go over one right now, and this is a rather famous one. I actually learned about this case when I was in Scientology. Um, and this was the case of Phineas Gage. Many, many of you might have heard this story because this was the guy who ended up getting the spike, the railroad spike, through his head, and he lived. And this was back, I think, in the 1920s. And this was a fascinating study. Um, what happened was he was out working on the line, and he was a big bold guy and he was orderly and he was he was well liked and he got along with people and uh, this spike went through his head and he didn't even go unconscious. He was knocked down and the doctor came out and you know everybody was freaking out. But this this thing went through his head, up through his jaw and into his head and it definitely sliced out parts of his brain. I mean there was it's a little graphic, but literally brain matter was there on the site when the doctor came and the guy, he was still conscious and crawling around and I mean, it was pretty hideous. Well, he lived, but he was never the same again. And I mean a complete change of personality. Uh, here's actually the quote from the time by the people who worked with him and what they had to say. The equilibrium or balance, so to speak, between his intellectual faculties and animal propensities seems to have been destroyed. He is fitful, irreverent, indulging at times in the grossest profanity, which was not previously his custom, manifesting little deference for his fellows, impatient of restraint or advice when it conflicts with his desires, at times perniciously obstinate, yet capricious and vacillating, devising many plans of future operations which are no sooner arranged than they are abandoned in turn for others appearing more feasible. A child in his intellectual capacity and manifestations, he has the animal passions of a strong man. Previous to his injury, although untrained in the schools, he possessed a well-balanced mind and was looked upon by those who knew him as a shrewd, smart businessman, very energetic and persistent in executing all his plans of operation. 
In this regard, his mind was radically changed, so decidedly that his friends and acquaintances said he was no longer Gage, no longer himself, no longer the person that he was. Be what was the difference between before and after? Losing parts of his brain. No other change. And like I said, he lived through the whole thing. So it wasn't just a traumatic episode. It was actual loss of brain matter. And that completely changed the person that he was. Kind of tells you something about the relationship between the integrity of the brain and the integrity of our personality and what makes us who we are. We can write this off as brain damage and separate that idea from, the, from who the person was, but, it, but should we? You know, did Phineas Gage's, I mean, let's take a look at this for a second. If Phineas Gage's personality is determined by a soul or an immortal spirit, where did that iron bar alter his spirit or his soul? It couldn't have. And yet his entire nature changed after this. He was not the same guy. And coincidentally, that happened at the exact same moment his brain was damaged. These two things, who we are and the integrity and operations of our brain, appear to be inseparable, even if there might be other factors at play that drive our life force or feelings, or, or not our feelings, but our, our, our uh, free will, let's say. This guy, I mean, if he had free will over how he wanted to be and how he wanted to present himself and how he wanted to be in the world, then... And if that came from a soul or spirit, then why would all that brain damage have any effect on him? Now, I know this is kind of a silly question, but I want to pose it to people out there who might have some beliefs about this, because this might, this is the sort of thing that we run up against out there, right? So I'm interested in your feedback on this stuff. Because the thing is that even if he did have a soul or a spirit, it doesn't change anything about what I just said about his behavior and attitude and change of attitude. Now let's take a look at decision making because this goes right to that. You know, well, I have free will in terms of what decisions I make. How I go about making my decisions and the decisions I make are 100% completely my own and no one else's and I'm the one who makes the ultimate and final decision in everything. Is that what you think? <laughs> well, let's take a look at that. It's a bit of an illusion. For example, when it comes time for you to make a decision about something or uh, make a, let's say you are, let's say you are faced with a multiple choice scenario of some kind, right? And you're presented with this dilemma or this problem to solve. How many choices actually occur to you on your own when you're thinking about this. Maybe the decision is only a binary, yes or no. Or maybe it's, you know, a three, it's a yes, no, maybe. But if you have a multi, a multiple choice decision to make based, you know, it could be if you're going to buy a Ford, you're going to buy a Chevy, you're going to buy a, um, a Dodge, you know, you're going to have to make up your mind about all these different cars, but when you start thinking about this, how many choices actually occur to you? Do all of them occur to you? Probably not. Probably only a couple occur to you. You've whittled it down to these, right? So you kind of have to ask yourself, where do these choices come from? Well, clearly they come from your thinking. You know, there you are sitting on your couch wondering what to have for dinner. 
You get a visual image of what's in your fridge and what kind of foods you feel like you want to eat at the moment. Do you have much conscious choice over how you feel or what kind of tastes you're craving at the moment? Not really. If your sweet tooth is acting up, then when you stop and think about what you want to eat, a carrot or a piece of broccoli probably won't be in the list of items you visualize to choose from. You're in the mood, quote-unquote, for something sweet. And from the choices your brain musters up from somewhere, you don't know where, by the way, you make a decision. Maybe what would have really satisfied you beyond all imagination would have been a Mars bar. But you didn't think about a Mars bar. Your brain gave you the choices of a Milky Way and a Three Musketeers and maybe threw an apple in the mix because you recently watched a show about natural sugar uh, being better than artificial, so you put that in there as your healthy option. It doesn't even occur to you that there are about 50 more choices available to you that you aren't even thinking about at all because when you're not thinking about something, you're not aware of the fact that you're not thinking about it. Your brain offered you three or four choices, and that was what you selected from. And that's actually the bottom line point I'm trying to make here. So, one of the biggest things about free will is it does challenge our systems. It challenges our societal systems. It challenges, in some ways, some of the most fundamental assumptions of our entire culture. Especially when we get into rights, liberties, the justice system. So does not having free will affect that? Not really. We have to continue to live in a society which values our right to choose the elements and activities of our life on our own without being dictated to by some authoritarian structure or society. If we put all that system in place too. That just adds another layer on top of no free will. Now we've got a whole other layer of, of enforced decision-making and authoritarianism. That's basically what that means. On top of what we're already talking about. So none of the external factors particularly affect um, the idea that we, that we have or don't have free will, but they can only affect us in, in terms of depriving us or taking away our ability to make choices, right? Uh, for the most part. Okay. Also, knowing more about our subjective nature and how our decisions come about can actually help resolve disputes, arguments, etc. If you're capable of engaging in enough introspection to trace down real causes for things rather than the false narrative that you spin, then you can actually start getting somewhere. Now, I'm not saying that you're going to be, ever be able to get down to root causes for why various thoughts and ideas occur to you. They're random, practically. I mean, you, you, you know, if you traced it all back, you'd find things going back to your childhood. You'd things going back to your education, back to a TV show. You have something you heard on the radio in the background yesterday. I mean, all kinds of inputs are going into your brain 24-7. So you're not aware of almost all of those inputs. <laughs> and all of those inputs do have an effect on your decision-making process. All right. I've applied this, though, recently, um, after learning about all of this, to my own marriage, to my own interpersonal relations. And I'm not claiming that I'm like the, the you know, never get mad or don't make bad choices or anything like that. What I'm, what, but I have found it quite interesting uh, 
that when I get, I don't know, upset, triggered, angry, whatever word you want to throw out there, when I, when, you know, let's say my wife and I are talking and she says something and it sets me off, happens, or I say something sets her off, right? But we're talking about me right now. I have become, I've started doing something different. Instead of reacting and, and screaming back or saying the first, you know, I, I actually shut my mouth. I stop talking and I start thinking because something set me off. And it's hardly ever the thing I think it is. In fact, so far, it's never been the thing I thought it was. The thing that was on my mind to say right there, right then, the story I was already weaving in my head to rationalize and justify why I was pissed just disappears on, in, on actual inspection. When I stop and I don't talk and I just go, wait a second, let me think about this for a second. Now, the ironic, the ironic, but the interesting side effect of this is it gives her time to think, too. And she chills. And then we both chill. And in about 10 or 15 minutes, I, through my introspection, have sort of like, okay, what was I thinking? And this is, this is not any kind of exact science. I'm just sharing my experience with you. I'm not even giving this to you as, as advice of what you guys should do. I'm just telling you what happened to me. I started thinking wait a second, what did she say? What was I thinking right before that? What was I thinking immediately when she said that? What prompted that thought? And I start thinking and looking and introspecting. And I've only taken it back like one or two steps, but it was enough to see that the thing I thought I was all upset and angry about had almost nothing to do with the actual thing that set me off. And once I could see that, of course, the anger dissipates, the upset dissipates, and I'm able to explain to her what I was thinking and where it was coming from, and then it's kind of gone. And she sees how that happened, and she goes, oh, that makes sense, and we talk it out. And then the disagreement is resolved, and that's it. And that's happened a few times. It's not happened like every day, because Melissa and I don't fight every day. We fight hardly ever. Uh, and when we do, it's, you know, it's not any kind of knockdown drag out, but these little disagreements and stuff, they can build up. And I don't like building up disagreements like that. I don't like building up resentments. I don't want any of that in my marriage. So I'm working very hard to try to prevent that. And this is one of the mechanisms I've found to do that. So, um, and this all comes from what I've been studying and learning. So I have found in my own subjective reality of life and my mind and how I think and act, that I am capable of giving myself a second and third and fourth thought. You know, I can do enough. <laughs> you know, this whole thing about free will, it doesn't change anything about how you've been living your life. You haven't had free will your whole life. So it's not like suddenly becoming aware of it is really supposed to change a whole lot. What it's supposed to do is, is give you a better understanding of yourself. And if you have a better understanding of yourself, then you'll, more, you'll be more able to live your life how you want to live your life. And that's kind of what it's about. So, all right, let me, let me see if I can kind of bring this all together now and, and, and head toward a conclusion here, okay? Um, and I do want to say again that all the things I'm saying right now are subject to change. This is not a podcast of this is how it is. 
It's a podcast of this is how I'm looking at things right now, and I'm finding this to be a very intriguing and interesting way of looking at things, and I'm finding that this is helping me in my life more than it's hurting me, and it's making things make a lot more sense across the boards. So how do I summarize this? Well, here's what I wrote. Our conscious mind, the part we're aware of, is not nothing. But I think the lesson here is that how we perceive ourselves is just part of the picture. It's the only part we actually see and are aware of, so we make subjective and very wrong conclusions about how and why we think the way we do and what sort of control we have over our decisions and actions, and that has been all we've been able to do all these years. We needed neurology and brain scans and MRIs and all that to come into the picture the same way that we needed microscopes to figure out microorganisms. I mean, if you think about life before a microscope, <laughs> right? I mean, imagine no concept, having no clue that there were viruses and bacteria and, you know, that there were symbiotes all throughout our body, that there were more bacterium in our body than there were human cells. I mean, pieces of information like that are rather crucial to understanding how our bodies work. But we didn't have a clue. Why didn't we have a clue? Because we had no microscope. So there was no way to verify that these things existed. There was no way to find out they existed. Just like there was no way to find out what was going on up in the stars and skies before we had telescopes. And once we got them, we figured out all kinds of things real fast. And it challenged intensely important worldviews that everybody held. This is kind of the same thing. You know, we suspected that these things existed, but we couldn't figure it out. And we couldn't do a damn thing to solve cholera or stop the plague, except burn bodies and burn the houses after the fact. Knowledge was the key to all of it. And that is what we are gaining a lot more of now, because we've got a ton of people out there, and they are very smart people, and they are working very hard on trying to solve every aspect of this. Some of them go about it in wrong, stupid, you know, dunderheaded kind of ways, but that's part of the process. You know, we don't have to just like ridicule everybody. I mean, that's part of the scientific process. We're going to make mistakes. We're going to make 10,000 of them before we hit the right single thing. I think that what we're talking about now with this is along the line of one of those monumental discoveries about ourselves that eventually is going to change everything. As far as our legal system is concerned, its most bedrock principle is that we have free will and full right of determination over our actions. But we see now that that's not true. I'd suggest that this calls for a change, but the truth is that we aren't ready for that change yet. The information's too new and too fresh, and it needs a lot of overhaul and review before we're going to know what to do with it. However, we can start acknowledging some harsh truths now and start the conversations. That's always how major societal shifts begin. And here is my last point, and then we'll wrap up for this week. It would be inaccurate to think after all this that we can be reduced to what Sam Harris calls neural weather patterns. <laughs> you know, like a, like a weather report. There's a lot more to us than just our neurons and the gray matter that holds them. 
we both influence and are influenced by other people and factors around us. In fact, here are just a couple of external reflections of ourselves beyond our bodies. Our interactions with others have a huge effect on our behavior, as does our genetic makeup. The threat assessment we're constantly making, the vast collection of chemicals and microorganisms that live not just on our body, but in our immediate environment and which can radically or not so radically change our entire lives overnight, like getting a minor skin rash or getting a major case of lead poisoning. That'll change your personality. <laughs> Given our vast social networks and the random influencers that affect our lives every day, if you were to draw up a list of all the things that can have an effect on your thinking, you'd be writing lists for days, if not weeks. We're not just the sum of our parts. And ultimately, there may be more to us that we can't even perceive or detect yet because we just don't have that kind of microscope. I mean, you know, I mentioned this 300 millisecond delay between our brain activating and, dis and making the motion of moving our hand and our conscious realization of that happening. There's a delay there. Well, maybe that delay comes from some other factor, a spiritual factor, in fact, which it does have free will and is making decisions and is exerting itself on us. Well, if so, you can believe that but it's obviously very limited by the physical limitations of our bodies and especially our brains and, and the kinds of thinking it can and can't do. If we do have a soul or spirit of some kind, we seem to be lacking any separate memories or awareness of it, and finding scientific proof of such things has been, so far been a completely fruitless search. But that doesn't mean that there's nothing there. And I have to stress that because that's the only intellectually honest position to take. I'm not saying that there is a spirit or soul, and I'm not saying that there isn't a spirit or soul. What I'm saying is that if we're going to be intellectually honest, we have to say, well, there could be, but we have no means of detecting that at this time. So therefore, you have the ability to decide, do I choose to think that that's true or do I choose to think that that's not true? Or do I choose to just say, I don't know? And I think that's the intellectually honest position to take on that whole thing. That's actually one of the reasons why I am an agnostic. All right, so I wanted to wrap this up with a final quote. And this also comes from Sam Harris in his uh, book, Free Will. Our sense of our own freedom results from our not paying close attention to what it is like to be us. The moment we pay attention it is possible to see that free will is nowhere to be found. And it is from that place that I will be doing the rest of my studies and looking into this, but I am wide open to all of your comments and ideas about this, and I look forward to seeing them in the comment section either on YouTube or at sensiblyspeaking.com. Thank you very much for coming around and listening to me talk about this. This has been a very, very important bit of research that I've been working on, and I intend on continuing this and talking more about this kind of thing. Um, I don't know that I'm going to talk about free will again, I mean, you know, unless I encounter some kind of massive change of mind on this or some compelling evidence that gets me to think differently. But in terms of uh, talking about critical thinking and its relationship to this whole process that I've been talking about, 
this is the stuff I'm, I'm very, very interested in right now. All of these psychological mechanisms have everything to do with why we get into bad situations like destructive cults. So I think you can see pretty easily, you can connect the dots as to how I've gotten to where I've gotten here. And I've only just begun on so much of this research. I am looking forward to learning so much more. But the things that I've talked about here in this podcast, as far as I know, are about the edge, are on the edge or limits of so much of our understanding of this. And we are confronted right now by, as David Egan wrote in the book Incognito, one of the references for this podcast, um, we are confronted by a field, an infinite field of question marks that goes off forever in terms of the things that we actually can be sure of and know for a fact are true when it comes to neurology and our brains and whatnot. You know, we've got so much more work to do. So all of this is subject to change, and I'm giving myself the freedom to change my mind about all of this or any of this at will. <laughs> and I thought that I would end on that little bit of irony. Thank you very much for coming around, and I will see you guys next week. Bye-bye.